Welcome to the Good Question with Jessica Tanderup podcast. I'm Jessica, and I have a passion for asking hard questions and going deep in conversation. Usually, these discussions happen over dinner or coffee with a close friend. But on this podcast, I bring them to you because I want you to know if you have questions, you're not alone. On this show, I invite apostolic leaders, thinkers, and fellow believers to tackle the tough topics questioners face as we strive to live out our biblical mandate to love God, love people, and take the gospel to the whole world here in the 21st century. I hope you'll stick around because when you know Jesus is the answer, every question can be a good question. Friends, welcome to episode nine of season two. Wow, this season has flown by so fast. I hope you've enjoyed all the missionaries and missions adjacent guests we've spoken with over the past eight weeks. I have loved recording these episodes and getting to share them with you. Today's episode is no exception. I met Dean Byfield when I moved to New York in 2007, and he was the youth pastor at Bethel United Pentecostal Church, the church where Dave and I met. Over the years, God has taken all of us in different directions, and now, Dean and his wife, Lorraine, are missionaries to France. I sat down with a spotty internet connection and a cup of tea to catch up with him and hear all about how God has been directing his steps. It's an amazing, honest, vulnerable story that I know is going to bless you today, especially if the thing God is asking you to do makes absolutely no sense. (laughs) Let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Dean Byfield. Dean Byfield, welcome to Good Question. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting to get to talk to you. Uh, we are old friends that haven't chatted in a long time, and so I'm excited to get to talk to you about missions, but also just to catch up. And so it's it's really a joy to have you on the podcast today. I'll let you introduce yourself, tell our listeners about who you are. Hello, listeners. My name is Dean Byfield. I Grew up in New York, where uh, Jessica mentioned that we were mutual friends there. And uh, I am now, since 2015, I am a missionary in France. Actually, in 2015, I came to France as an aimer. And in 2019, I came back to France as an official missionary. And so we have been on the field now for uh, two or three years. And we have, um, my wife and I, we have a son that was actually born here on the field. And he is now six years old. And so we're just being led by God each day. Yes. So this is a very different life path than you were on when I knew you in New York. So talk to me about how this all came about. You and your wife um, both had established careers and you were kind of on a, a certain trajectory in the United States and you left that to pursue missions. So can you talk to me about how that all came about? My wife and I got married in 2013. I was working in real estate. She is an accountant. And I had no intentions of being in missions. As a matter of fact, when we, when we got married, I was an assistant pastor at that time in uh, Columbus, Ohio. But I was bivocational, so I had a, a career also. And my intention at that time was to eventually pastor and eventually go into the ministry full-time, but I had intended to do all of that in North America. After uh, we got married, uh, actually my wife moved to Ohio. We were living there for a while. We had, uh, she had a great job. God really blessed us. Uh, and after we got married, we 
it was strange how it happened. We we were just living our lives, and and as a matter of fact, we were uh, just about to purchase a home in Ohio and just just start life and and settle down and have children. And uh, my wife's parents, who have been missionaries here in France for the last forty five years, we we talk every week and just you know just talk about family things. But on one of these conversations, uh, the topic came up about a church that was in Paris. It was an English-speaking church, and that English-speaking church, the pastor that was there was going to the United States on deputation, and they needed someone to fill in while he was gone. And this wasn't a request of ours. It was just a conversation that we were having. Uh. And my father-in-law was saying that it's, it's, it's a little bit complicated because there are not enough people here that command the English language good enough to be able to pastor that church. Hmm. And so he was having a hard time finding someone to replace the pastor that was going on deputation. And that conversation passed. And um, one day my wife said, what would you think about filling that obligation for about a year while the pastor was on deputation? And I immediately dismissed it. <laughs> I had no intention of going to France. And she didn't, she didn't really mention anything after that. And then uh, as days and weeks went along, I, it's almost like God had to gradually just talk to me, convince me. Uh, and as time was going along, it's to start to be on my mind more. And, I, and, and then in subsequent conversations, I would ask, you know, what's, what's happening with that church in Paris? And they said, still the same deal. The missionaries getting ready to leave. We have no replacement. And so I started really praying about it. And, and uh, it was a big deal for me because uh, the first thing I, I, I was praying about, and I, I felt uh, uh, led somewhat to go there. The first thing I asked is, is the, I was very ignorant to the, to the logistics of, of, of actually being a missionary. I knew what missionaries were, but I didn't know how they were funded. I, I didn't know much about that. So when I heard that we, as aimers, we'd have to go to the various churches and raise our pretty much a year's salary. Mm-hmm to go to France along with uh, housing expenses and everything. And, and, and at that point, I said, definitely not. I, 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 can't, <laughs> I can't do that because you go from uh, getting a paycheck consistently to relying on people to, to uh, fund your life. Mm-hmm. And that was contrary to everything that I, I just was taught. And so I kind of put that on the back shelf. But then God would not, allow me to just dismiss it. The, the thought kept coming in my mind. And I asked God, I said, God, you know, I, 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 you, you pull the man card, you know, you say, God, I'm, I'm married. And we want to have a kid, uh, a child. And we, we, we want to buy a house. And you, you want me to be a responsible Christian man. I want <laughs> to be able to work and provide for my family. There's no way that I'm going to be able to stop working and leave and just not just rely on people to fund us. And God asked me, how much do you trust me? Mm. How much do you really trust me? And um, there was a lot going on. I don't want to drag on too long about this, but there was a lot that was going on during that time why I was very hesitant. We had tried to have uh, a child earlier, about two years prior to that, or, or a year prior to that, and the doctors had told my wife that it was impossible to her, for her to conceive naturally. Mm. And uh, we uh, just continued doing the work of the Lord there in Ohio. And we said, you know what? 
<laughs> and be careful when you say this. We said, God, even if we could, we'll never have a child, whatever you want us to do, we're going <laughs> to do it. And so that's where I sealed my fate right there. And when this came up, a, a miracle really took place. My wife conceived naturally. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we had made, uh, long story short, we had made the commitment to come to France after God dealt with me and 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 just told me to trust in him. We made the commitment to come to France. And after we made that commitment, that's when I found out my wife was pregnant. Mm. I said, God, now what do I do? I've made this commitment. And now I'm even feel more pressure because a child is on the way. Mm. And again, God just put in my mind, how much do you trust me? And, and, and so after months of praying and just uh, seeking God, we really felt led that this was the thing to do. And uh, I, I'll never forget the day I went to talk to my boss and uh, I told her that I, I'll have to, I'm, I'm going to be terminating my employment here. And, and then she, we were very close and she called me and she said, well, well is everything okay? I said, yes, uh, my wife and I are moving to France. <laughs> Keep in mind, my wife is about seven months pregnant at this point. <laughs> and so she, she said to me, she says, close the door. She closed her office door. She said, sit down. She pretty much asked me, are you, are you out of your mind? What, 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 what is this about? I said, you know, this is, this is a call. I can't explain it, but this is a calling that, that is, is we feel that's on our lives, and this is what we feel we need to do. And so she started asking all the questions, really the right questions. She said, do you have medical insurance there? I, I happen to have a job where we had great medical insurance, great hospitals, everything in Ohio. And she, she started going on a list of questions. Do you know where your wife is going to give birth? Do you, she's asking me all these questions. And the answer to every one of those questions was no, mm. no, I don't know. I don't know. And she looked at me and she says, I, I, have you really thought this through? And at that point, I have to admit to you, I started to have doubts. Mm. And by the time I walked out of that meeting, I felt like the, the most, probably the lowest I just felt that I was the most irresponsible man in the world. Here I am taking my seven, my wife that's seven months pregnant to another country where we have no insurance. We don't even know where she's going to give birth. We have no doctor. And I felt like the most irresponsible man in the world. And I'm, I'll never forget, I went back to my desk that day and I said, God, what is, is this, is this really true? And again, God checked me and says, you need to trust me. And uh, I said, okay, God, here it is. And I handed in that resignation. My wife did the same. And we got ready, packed up all our stuff, put our stuff in storage, because this initially was aimed for one year. Mm -hmm. So the intention was to come to France for a year, fill in for that pastor, and then come back to the States. So we, we were renting an apartment at the time, so we took all our furniture and put it in storage. And then flew back to New York to get ready to fly out of New York with all our suitcases for a year. And uh, the people at the airlines, some of our friends told us that you might not be able to fly because now, you know, at seven months, seven and a half months pregnant, you're showing very much. Yeah. And some of our friends said to us, you know, you might not be able to fly because it's, it's, it's up to the airline's discretion if you fly or not, if you're that pregnant. And we said, oh boy. <laughs> so... I did. I, we got a big coat 
and I put like a big sweater and I put it on my wife and I said, you just keep the sweater closed. And you walk close behind me when we're walking onto that plane because we don't want anyone to stop us. <laughs> we don't want any issue. So we kind of kind of smuggled her on the plane. <laughs> and that was at JFK. And uh, after all of that drama, we sat down. You know, when you go to the airport, you're going through the mad rush and then you just get a chance to sit down in the seats and just start to gather your thoughts. And that's the worst thing that I could have done was gather my thoughts <laughs> because here it is now. We, we are on the plane at JFK and we're, we're leaving for France. And I said, God, I kept saying under my breath, we've got this, God, we've got this. As the plane is taxiing down the runway for takeoff, I look over at my wife and I see pregnancy, very much pregnant body sitting there next to me. And as we take off from JFK, I'm looking back at the New York skyline and I'm looking at the financial opportunities that we've thinking about the financial opportunities that we're leaving behind, even though it was for a year, but I thought it was, it would be very disruptive to try to come back and get a job. We're leaving the insurance, medical insurance, health insurance opportunities behind. We're leaving so many things behind. And I had panic. Mm. I mean, it was a, I've never had a panic attack in my life, but it was almost like I wanted to get up and go tell them to turn the plane around. This was a mistake panic just came over me and I, I call on, on the name of Jesus and I said, God, I need you to help me right now because it, 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 it was, it was actually manifesting itself physically. I started shaking. Mm. I said, God, you need to, you need to help me right now because I, this, I, I'm in the middle of a panic attack. And immediately when I call on the name of Jesus, he reminded me again, he says, I am God and there's nothing that's too hard for me. Mm. And immediately when that scripture from Jeremiah came to my mind, there was a peace that came over me. And I said, God, I, I'm, I'm going to trust you. And so that's, that, that's how that whole event took place of leaving the States, leaving our jobs and, and coming to France. Hmm. I, I appreciate that you're sharing that with, with honesty and vulnerability, because I think, you know, over this, the course of this season, we've asked every person that we've had on that, to talk about missions, to talk about their call. And it's uh, a different, circumstance for everybody. Yes. Some people, yes. um, you know, we spoke with Sister Colin Carter, who's in Africa. She's a single lady. She's been in Africa for 22 years. And she was called to missions when she was 14. And she knew mm -hmm. it. She knew it. She knew it. She had never been on a plane before. She flew from New Brunswick, Canada, all the way to Africa the very first time she ever got on a plane. And she just knew. But for other people, it doesn't happen that way. And, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of amusing to me to hear your story, not because I um, don't have compassion for you, but because I do in that our situation was exactly the opposite. God started talking to Dave mm -hmm. and it made no sense to me. And I was the same. Yeah. I was like, that's not, that's not a thing. <laughs> no, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not yeah. what God wants us to do. That doesn't make any sense. And it right. took time of the Lord just kind of showing me like, no, I'm, this is me. I'm doing this. And I think also it's important for people to hear that sometimes when we follow God, that peace doesn't come until we make the move. Right. You know, we, right. we, we think that we're like, okay, if I, if I'm in the will of God, I'm going to feel at peace about it. Right. But sometimes we step out in faith before the peace comes. Right. And he takes you step by step. And, uh, you read that all through the word of God. He doesn't always unfold the master plan to you. He just tells you, I mean, we read about that with, with Abraham, you know, go, where am I going? Just go. And yeah. that's, that's where I felt I was. Yeah. Hmm. 
Well, so from there, you're still in France. (laughs) You did not come back to the States. So (laughs) tell me about how that all came about. We did not. We came here for a year to the parish church. And uh, I would love to say that when when I landed in France, that I got all that confidence. God had to work on me for a a little while here. When we got to France, we were living with my in-laws. And by this time, my wife's about seven and a half, eight months pregnant. And the first matter of business when we get here is we have to find the hospital. Mm-hmm. We've got to find a doctor because I mean, this baby could come at any time. <laughs> and we're totally unprepared. We don't even know where to go. So the city that my, my in-laws live, there was a hospital there. Actually, in the neighboring city, a large hospital. But this was my biggest shock in moving to another country. Now, France, by is 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 typically uh, considered a first world country but when we walked into the hospital in that neighboring city i felt that we were in a third world country it felt like that hospital had not been touched anything had been done to it since maybe the 50s mm. and it was not clean and now you know uh the the maternity wards in the states they're like <laughs> luxury hotels <laughs> You know, and we had we had visited one of the, the those hospitals in the states in in Ohio, and then we came to this. And when I walked in there, I could see my wife's face, and even the room they had they they, they would put us in, and and I could see my wife's face, and and she says, "You know what? Can we look to see if there's something something else?" I said, "Sure," and then we started basically just driving around looking for a doctor, looking for a hospital, and then uh, we came to a city by the name of Fontainebleau, France. And um, there was a, a, a brand new maternity clinic that had just opened. And we went to the clinic and basically we started knocking on all the doors of the doctors asking if they would accept my wife as a patient. Well, the first door we knocked, we knocked the doctor there. She was a lady. She said, I'm sorry, I, I, cannot, I cannot take your wife. And now we go to the next doctor and he opens the door and we tell him, you know, our situation. And he kind of just looks at us for a few seconds. And uh, he says, okay, I'll, 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 uh, your wife can be my patient. From that moment on, in that city of Fontainebleau, my wife became that doctor's patient. We would go back uh, for, for the various tests on the baby. He actually gave us a, a room in the clinic, everything that we needed. And... Uh, as we're going back and forth from my in-law's house to this clinic in Fontainebleau, France, God begins to speak to me. And he begins to say that I want a church here in this city. Hmm. And I'm like, okay. I thought this call was to go to Paris, to be <laughs> in this, you know, and <laughs> I'm just getting, a, this is like the first two weeks that we're here now. So I'm just getting my mind wrapped around taking over this parish church for a year. And now God starts talking to me about Fontainebleau. So my, my mind, and then, and then the baby is coming. So my mind is just all over the place. And as we're going back and forth, and then my, and Caleb is born, he was born there in Fontainebleau. And God just kept saying to me, there's going to be a church here. I want to start a church here. And I kind of put that on the back burner and, uh, we went to the went to the church in Paris and uh, served there for about nine months, and then the pastor came back, and uh, my father-in-law said to me, "What what are you guys going to do now? Are you going to go back to the states, or are you going to stay in France?" 
and that this Fontaine Blue thing came back to my mind. I said, oh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And so we prayed about it, and uh, we decided that we would go back to the States and try to raise some money to come back and uh, do another term of AIM, be AIMers in, uh, for another term, and just kind of see how this Fontaine Blue thing would work out. Mm. Well, we did that. We went back to the States. We based out of Ohio, out of the church that I left uh, out of, Robert Linder's church there in Ohio. And we traveled around Ohio, did a few, uh, traveled in New York for a few months and raised funds to come back to France. But uh, when we came back as Amers, we got so involved in my father-in-law's church that was in a town called Merlin, France. It's, it's the headquarters church. In, uh, in all of France. He started this work 45 years ago. The church has approximately 500 people, members, oh, wow. about 500 members. And so we came back here with intentions of just starting something in Fontainebleau. And we got so caught up in working here at the church and, and helping them and, and, and trying to help as much as we can. And really for that time, for that year, Fontainebleau was not really on our radar at all. We were just, we just got so involved in this headquarters church from everything from administration to teaching to preaching. We got so involved, we had no time to do that. And uh, so we were here for approximately a year and a half just doing that. And then I started to notice that the things that we wanted to do, you know, even just normal everyday things, we were kind of scraping for money. And so my wife being the accountant, you know, I, I, I don't pay attention. I don't know if this is good or bad, but I don't, I, I, I didn't really pay attention to the finances. I just said, you know, whatever we're doing, just, just let me know if things go bad and we'll, we'll figure it out. And, uh, I realized that even just to do the day-to-day things, we started really lacking the funds that we need. So I said to my wife, well, let's, let, how much money are we getting? Let's look at our donor list. And, I was blown away that we were even able to live on the small, the little that we were getting monthly. Mm. Uh, and it, that in itself was a miracle. But at that point, I had to make a decision. I said, we cannot remain here doing, if God opens a door and we're able to get some kind of alternate funding or get more donors, we can stay. But I said, if not, we, we, we really can't, we really can't do this. And, uh, we started talking to some of our, um, some of the elders in my life, some of the leaders, Pastor Doug Davis, you know, uh, started consulting, counseling with him about being full-time missionaries. Because as a full-time missionary, you have more stability in funding. Hmm. Uh, as aimers, you really don't. And so we started con- consulting with him about that. And he, um, he said he thought it would be a good idea for us to do that, hmm. to... Uh, apply to be full-time missionaries and if we feel a call to go to france that we should go that route and and try that so that's what we did so we went back uh to the states applied to be missionaries went and met the board at general conference one year went to the uh, school of missions and then we started traveling on deputation around the states for approximately a year to raise money to come back to france and that's the reason we're still here. Wow. I mean, again, like I'm so thankful to have your your perspective and your just your transparency with this process because I think as a person in the states who just sees a missionary that comes through on deputation, there's so much that goes into it that people don't realize mm-hmm. and don't think about. Mm-hmm. 
and the way the funding works and the way, you know, your day-to-day life works. I don't know. I, I don't know how it is with you in France, but when we go to Denmark on a religious workers visa, we won't be allowed to to work in the country to raise, you know, to, right. to support ourselves. So we will be reliant on the funds that we've raised, you know, that we're raising right now to fund this year in Copenhagen. And so it's just, it's, I think it's good for people to hear that because sometimes it can feel like, oh, you know, these people, one of the people we had on earlier this season talked about how like he felt like missions was for super Christians and they just kind of, you know, they just go and they just kind of float along on the, on this cloud of Holy Ghost that just provides for them. And there's, there are practicalities to, to this lifestyle and to this calling that, that make it challenging and that make it uh, a walk of faith for each individual person in their own unique way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, it continues to be a walk of faith. And you begin to realize now that your life is an ongoing work with God. He, he continues to work on you. You never get to that part, that, that point where you've achieved and God, and you've arrived and God has really shown me that he's still, there's things that are still happening here as we're in France and he is just leading the way day by day. Yeah. So you mentioned that you came back and did some deputation and that kind of leads into the next thing I wanted to ask you about kind of taking a turn away from the missions um, focus for a minute. But this is something that I, that I have wanted to talk about on the podcast and because you're a friend, I feel like I can ask you about it and that you'll you'll be as honest with me about this as you've been um, about everything else so far. And that's the fact that you are an interracial family. And there's been so much um, discussion kind of brought to the forefront in the past few years here in the States about race and race relations in the church and the in the country as a whole. And so I was hoping that you would be um, comfortable talking to me about how that dynamic has affected your ministry in France, in the United States, as you're deputizing. I would just like to hear some of your thoughts about about where the church is standing on uh, how we're interacting with with families that don't look the way we're used to them looking. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. The the politically correct answer is that everything is good. God's making a way, and you know. We don't even see any of that. We're just blind to that. <laughs> but that would not be true. Yeah. Um, it is a challenge. It continues to be a challenge. And I was aware of that when I, I, Lorena and myself were getting married. I knew that we, we would see. It was very interesting. God kind of prepares you for things, you know. Uh, I was born in Jamaica, and Jamaica is 95 to 99% black. And moving to the States, we moved to Long Island, uh, Huntington, Long Island. And uh, I would say at that time in 1981, Huntington, Long Island was 75% white. Mm -hmm. Um, We started attending Bethel. Now, you know what Bethel looks like today, but Bethel did not look like it looks today in 1981. (laughs) Bethel was predominantly white. So that was a shock for me. And then because of where we lived, I went to a school that was probably 75% white. And so um, there were a lot of adjustments that I had to make. And very early on in my life, I, I began to see some things that I'd never seen before. And I was, I was probably eight or nine years old. And uh, I'll never forget, uh, I came here 
to the States. We came here and I went with my aunt. We were living with my grandparents and my aunt lived there also. And she took me to a drugstore one day and I was just blown away by America. And I was just walking down the aisle of the drugstore and seeing like they had a thousand different kinds of candies. And I was just blown away just looking at all this. And the clerk at that point, I saw him look at me. He must have just saw me looking at everything and just saying, well, what is this kid doing? I was just like kind of looking in awe. And um, I saw him look down the aisle and I kind of looked at him and then I looked back at what I was doing. And then I heard him say, you need to get out of the store. I'm so I was, I was like, is he talking to me? I need to get out of the store. And I looked at him. He says, yeah, you, you need to get out of the store. And at this point, my aunt hears this. She's in another aisle and she comes over. She says, what's the problem? And he says, the guy, the clerk says he was about to steal. Mm. And said, what are you, what are you talking about? And he told my aunt, he said, you can, you can leave too. Mm. And she was, and she said, what, 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 what's going on? He said, and then the next thing he said, as a young boy registered to me, he says, I know what they come in here to do. They come in here to steal. And I'm telling you, I, I cried the whole way home. Mm. because I mean, I was raised in a very, very conservative Christian family. I mean, as conservative, conservative as you could get. I was terrified of even stealing. I thought if I did anything bad, that the rapture would take place right away. That's, that's just, <laughs> I'm terrified. So, I, I mean, that was the furthest thing from my mind. And so I remember that day driving home, just, just crying, just wondering why. And the way the guy was looking at me, I couldn't understand why he was so mad at me, mm. what, what I did, what I do to him so to make him so angry with me. And um, my aunt at that point started to explain to me what was happening. Mm. And she says, you know, I didn't even know what the word stereotype was, mm. you know, and she began to explain some of those things to me. And um, my eyes open, you know, now I'm going to school. I'm going to church and I'm seeing that it's, it's almost like at first you, you, you recognize it, that you're obviously, obviously a different color. But now I'm starting to look around and, and start to wonder, well, does this person think I'm like that too? Mm. Does this person? You go to church and you start wondering, do these people think I'm like that? And so all these things are weighing on your mind. And so God really helped me to navigate through that in my life, you know, and, and deal with that. And as I got older, I started to come to terms with that. I didn't choose my life. I didn't choose to move to Huntington, New York. I didn't choose to go to Bethel. My parents made that choice. I just had to follow. And here I am. And I had to make that, make a choice on how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And every, every, I, I would go to school, even in, in uh, elementary school, junior high school, high school, I dealt with that. I dealt with that from teachers. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would feel that. I would feel that, that prejudice from, from, from even teachers. You kind of suppress it, you know, you, 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 you try to deal with it, but you, you, one of the, the ways to try to cope with it, I think I, I tried to pretend that it wasn't real or I just tried to forget about it mm. and go on with life. But then uh, there comes a point where you, you, you just, you have to confront it with God because, you know, your self-image, no matter what people say, it really relies on what others think about you, you mm. what you, you, you imagine what people are thinking about you. So I would, I would say that growing up through um, much of my teenage years, my image, my self-image wasn't great because I just thought I was a they, one of them that do these things. Mm. 
And so I didn't have good self-image. And so I really had to, uh, as I got older into my teenage years, I didn't want to be bitter because I had friends that were black that were bitter. Uh-huh. And the things that they would say and the things that they would say uh, uh, about whites. And, and I said, that I, I can't live like this. And then I would meet older people. I'd meet their parents and hear their parents talking about this. And I'm saying, I, I can't. I can't do this. I can't do this all my life and be so bitter. Mm-hmm. And so I really had to confront that with God. And I said, God, you you put my family here. You put me in this situation. And you've got to help me to deal with this. And uh, it was a work in progress. And God helped me to deal with that. And thank God for the church that I went to with uh, Bishop Davis was a pastor at the time. And that never was an issue. Um, I never felt that from him. I never felt that from Pastor Doug Davis, and that that really helped me also a lot. Uh, I felt like I was genuinely accepted by them. I felt like they genuinely loved me, and I felt that the church there genuinely loved uh, me and my family. And we, be- we began to make friends, my brother and I, in the church. As a matter of fact, childhood friends that I still have now that were not black. Huh. And we became very close, and that really helped me to um to not be bitter and to begin to cope with these things a little bit so you fast forward it now into my into my adult life and i get uh i deal with most of that stuff you know i i've pretty much dealt with it i've gotten a handle on it so you fast forward now to my adult life where i get married to someone that's white and it's like you know when you have that nightmare that comes back again mm-hmm. you know you thought i stopped i stopped having those nightmares years ago but here it comes again mm-hmm. and then i uh as we're, even when we're dating, you could see the way people look at you. You could see the way that you're received. And uh, it was very interesting because my wife never really, she never really experienced that. Yeah. And I would tell her, I was like, I would say, you know, you need to be aware of what you're getting into because you, you will begin to feel the brunt of some of the things I felt for a long time. Mm. And I've been able to deal with it, but you have to know what's, what's coming down the road. Yeah, and uh, she would say to me, in all genuineness, she didn't mean any harm. She says, "Do you think that you're overthinking that? Do you think that that's in your mind? Do you think that's just something that you're focusing on too much?" And I said, "It's very real." Mm. And I, I said to her, "You will experience it one day. I promise you." And uh, as we were dating, and we get, we got married, and we'd go to places. Uh, she lived in Toronto at the time. And, uh, and we'd go to different places in Toronto and things like that. And she felt like when she walked in with me, she was treated differently than when she was by herself. Mm. And there's certain things that would happen to us, certain experiences that we that would happen to us. And, you know, we'd kind of get back in the car on the way home and she, she would say, like, do you think that was that's happened to you because you were black? And I could see the wheels <laughs> starting to turn in her mind. And now I have to be very careful. Because I don't want her to be bitter also. I don't right. want her to be bitter either, rather. And so I'm just trying to explain, you know, I don't know what I do. I told her what I do. I give everyone the benefit of the doubt. People have bad days. You know, people have a bad situations in their life and they, they, they just react. It's not always out of racial prejudice. So I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. But if you see a pattern happening, especially with, you know, the same individual, then you begin to wonder about things. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I went about uh, explaining it to her. But it was amazing after we got married and, and we just were living life, how her eyes were 
beginning to open and she was saying, this is real. This, yeah. this, is, this is a real thing. I mean, she said, I feel it now. When, when I walk down the street with you, I feel it. And, um, and, and she began to realize that it wasn't really in my mind. This is something that we had to, we had to deal with. Huh. And um, you would want to say, and I'm very careful how I say this. Uh, I, I, think, I think that our church is the, uh, the United Pentecostal Church and organization is, is the greatest organization that we have. I, I, I love the support of the missionaries, the pastors. I felt very welcome here. But you don't always feel that everywhere you go. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if it's because of just, number one, in some instances, ignorance. Do they not have a circle of friends that are different than them? They don't know how to deal. They, they, you know. And then you have all this racial tension that's coming over the, the 24-hour news cycle. But you would go to some places and you just say, yeah, this, this, you, you could tell this feels different. You know, I would walk in, obviously, I won't name, say any names or any, or any locations, but there are times on deputation where we'd walk into a place and it's like you felt that tension. Like, I, I you know, it, it, was, it, was very, it was very obvious. And um, I think that's one of the times when my wife started to realize it the most. She says that that, that, felt, that felt different, you know, but... Yeah. Um, because you kind of expect it, I guess, out ahead, in the world. Yeah. You think like, oh, it's a sinful world. Racism is a is a product of us living in a sinful world. But I think there's kind of a, there's an assumption that once you come into the church and we're all, you know, we all feel it with the same Holy Ghost and we should, these things should just kind of go away. And yeah. the fact of the matter is, unless we confront them and deal with them, they don't go away. They don't. They don't. And uh, we experience it. We experience yeah. it, but you know, you know, to tell you the truth, Jessica, in, in in every situation where I felt that it was amazing, we would go to the church and we would just kind of feel this tension there and this kind of what do you call arms distance approach, you know, just like mm-hmm. you know, it's, and um, we would go and we would minister, but after church, it was an entirely different situation, mm. you know, like um, the Holy Ghost does uh, make a difference, and um. You would feel, and, and, and now I attribute that to a, a number of things. That's not just because um, I was black. I think that's just being a missionary and going to a church. You know, it's a different scenario because yeah. the pastor doesn't invite you to the church. You're sent to his church. <laughs> so you, you get there and he's like, okay, they don't know much about you than a, than a, a two-paragraph blurb that's, that's on the Global Missions page. They really yeah. don't know you. And so I attribute it to some that 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 sentiment that we feel to to some of that also the pastors kind of feeling you out to say well okay what is this guy about, but then the other places that we went where we know it 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 wasn't that it was something else, but yeah. um, most of the time we felt the the love and we were able to uh, connect with people sometimes yes, most of the times yes but sometimes no, but uh, we've gotten to the point now where we said we're doing the work of God this is necessary. And uh, we've got to live above this. Yeah. Yeah. You're like Nehemiah. I've got a work to do. I'm not coming down off this wall to deal with nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't easy every day. You know, there's sometimes you went to places and you're like, I, I you know, I can't believe we're, we're, we're dealing with this still. Yeah. I think, I think it's so good for, for our listeners who are white to hear that, in 2022, this is still a thing. And 
It's it's very easy as a white woman in middle America to go through my life and this to never confront me. The, the one thing I want to say is that, you know, there there are many, there, everyone in, in, in every aspect of life have things that they deal with, you know, and um, I don't think anyone's life is perfect. And uh, we choose just to live above whatever it is that's affecting us, uh, racism included. And like you mentioned before, there is such a work to be done for God mm. that um, we cannot let that affect us. I'm not ignorant to the fact that it's real. I know it's real, but I can't spend my time and effort trying to um, being uh, saturated with all, all the things that are, that are happening out there. Mm-hmm. I try to teach my son and I try to teach the people that, that, that I, I am responsible at the church the best way, to, the godly way to handle it. And, and, and that's truly with love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. I think it's, it's so important that we each individually look at what is ours to do. And for you, doing the work of God is the most important thing. And you've got to be focused on that. And like you said, you can't let it distract you. You can't let it make you bitter. Um, right. At the same time, for those of us in the church who are white, who don't have to deal with this on a daily basis, for us to just say, okay, well, he's, he's going to deal with it and he's going to work on it with the Lord and not get bitter. That removes responsibility from us. If we, if we take that approach, I, I believe we also have a responsibility to make sure that we're working it out, that we're teaching our kids. Right. That we're addressing these things and not just saying like, oh, well, it's not, it's not really a thing anymore because I don't have to deal with it. No, it right. is still a thing and it's not a good thing and it doesn't need to be in our churches. And we, and we need to be working on it on our end to get rid of it so that it's not Absolutely. a hindrance and a stumbling block for you, for your wife, for your children. Right. It's just, it's a, it's maybe a soapbox of mine, but it's something that I felt the Lord really put on my heart in the, in the past few years, but really since I was a child, that this is, this is an issue that. We, we've got to talk about it and get it out um, in order to heal from it and, and to, to really be able to work in unity to do the work of God. Absolutely. I appreciate you talking to me about it. I know that it can be a, a, a sticky subject, sensitive topic. Yes. But um, like I said, I knew, I knew that my friend Dean would be able to shed some, some good light and wisdom on it. And um, I appreciate you talking about it with us. No problem. So getting back to the work of God in France. So you guys are back there. You're appointed missionaries. What, where are you at now? Are you still there in that headquarters church? Have you, have you gone out to start a church? What, what does your work look like now? 2022 has been uh, uh, an amazing year uh, so far. We are still in the headquarters church. We're very much involved here to start that work in Fontainebleau, uh, that city. And uh, we have not been able to focus on that because we have been so involved here. Pardon, at this headquarters church, we were very involved. And so this year, earlier, actually last year, we had a um, guest here that, that taught us, just was teaching us some different principles and outreach and evangelism and things like that, that we were doing in this community. And so we started taking that approach to uh, Fontainebleau. We, we said, my wife and I had said, this year we're going to start focusing on Fontainebleau because we feel like it. God has called us to do it. We don't want to neglect it any longer. Mm. So we took some of those principles and um, took a group, uh, a few groups of people from the church here, and we would go. And basically what it is, you would just go to um, the center of town on the busy, in, during the busiest time, and you would just walk around and just make contact with people. It had didn't have to do with church. 
didn't have to do with religion. We'd just make contact with people. If we, for example, if we were uh, at a, a little park and, and there were other parents there and you're standing watching your the kids play, you just strike up a conversation and just start to have contact with people. Mm-hmm. And that's really the premises of it. It's really just trying to make connections with people that live in that community. And so uh, we started to, to apply that model uh, on a few few uh, different outings that we, we had. And uh, just in uh, January, on probably one of the coldest days of the year here, we took a, a group out. They have the market downtown on a Sunday in Fontainebleau. So we went, we came to the first, ser- we have two services in, in the headquarters church because of the size. And so we came to the first service, but the second service, we took a group of people. We went to Fontainebleau to the market area. And we just started to walk around to to apply this model again, just try to connect with people. And one of the groups from the church here saw a young lady that was at the market, and they said one of, one of the guys in the group said, "You know, I feel like we should just just say hi to her, connect with her." And um, it's funny, they they kind of followed her around, kind of stalked her. <laughs> I said, "I'm not sure that that's the way this is supposed to happen." <laughs> she's she's walking around in the market. And uh, finally, she turns around and they say, uh, you know, they say hello to her. And uh, they said it in French. They said bonjour. And, and, and then she responded by saying hello. Hmm. And they said, oh, you, you speak English. And she says, yes, I, I'm here. Um, I go to one of the schools here. Fontainebleau is, is, uh, has a few international schools. And so there's a lot of English-speaking people in this city. And she says, I, I, I go to school here. And they started talking to her. She says, uh, I'm from Lebanon and I... I attend school here and and they started just talking to her about just life and things and they told her that you know we we attend the church in merla and 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 things like that and she kind of stopped them right there and she said you know last week i had been asking god to help me to find christian friends Uh and i'd been asking god to help me to find people that could teach me about the bible wow and uh that you, you, it was just a God thing in that market. They met that girl that day. And uh, we had been very deliberate about what we wanted to do in Fontainebleau this year. We had, we had told the church here that what we want to do is start a small group first. As that small group begins to expand, then it, we will we'll begin to start a, uh, have a church plant. But we want to start with some small groups. And so they asked this girl, they said, you know what? We have pastors that live right in the city. And if you want a Bible study or if you want to learn more about God, they're willing to have you come to their place and teach. She said, I would love that. Aww. She says, "She says, can I bring my friends? <laughs> she said, absolutely. So she came, uh, this is about two weeks ago now, she came to uh, our apartment with her friend. And we went through one of our Bethel's. I got all the Bethel uh, small group material. Yes. And uh, I anticipated all of this. I, I wanted to be ready. I didn't want to have people not be ready. So we anticipated all this. We got the Bethel material. We translated it. And we were just waiting to start this. And so we got that material. And uh, But thankfully, I mean, luckily, these, these girls spoke English. So we didn't yeah. have to do it in French. And so we taught them one of the uh, Bethel small group resources and they loved it we stayed there for about three hours that first meeting we just talked about things 
And they asked, they said, can we do this regularly? Can we come back and do this regularly? And it was like God was from all the way, Jessica, from all the way to the day that I left New York. It was like God reminding me, saying, I am in control. Yeah. This is my timing. This is my deal. You just follow. And now we have them tomorrow night. They'll be coming back. And then they also met a man in the market. Now, you wouldn't believe this. And so they said bonjour to him again. And he started speaking to them in French, but he had an accent, a French accent. And they said, well, where are you from? The guy says, I'm from Jamaica. <laughs> I said, what are the odds that That's I find so another awesome. Jamaican man, not only in France, but in the city that I'm living in? I mean, you don't find Jamaicans here. That's amazing. And so they, I mean, they, they just all start laughing and he's wondering why they're laughing. They said, our pastor was born in Jamaica. <laughs> he was shocked too. And so um, they started corresponding with him by, uh, by text. And uh, last week, Sunday, he texted one of the young ladies and he said, you know, what? I want to be, I want to come to church. And so he came to church on Sunday morning, this past Sunday morning and received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. And so after church, I, you know, I connected with him and started talking to him. And I said, well, where in Fontainebleau do you live? And he's, he, he lives maybe two minutes from our apartment. Wow. Said, well, you know, we have this uh, small group that we've started. I don't know if you're interested in coming and being a part of that. He said, I would love to. So here we have our small group started that we've been praying about and waiting for. And it's, it started a few weeks ago. And now we have three people there that we'll be teaching uh, this week, Friday, and then God is going to open. He's already opening so many doors in that city. And uh, a few weeks ago, we found uh, a place for rent, to rent a building. I mean, it's just the timing, how God puts all this together. We found a place to rent, and um, we're still in the the process of negotiating that. But it's almost like God is just putting all the pieces together and... uh, it's it's amazing the way it's coming together. And we, we finally started that group in Fontainebleau that he's been talking to me about. God has been talking to me about since 2015. Wow. You talk about, you know, you, you read the story about Joseph and you hear about his dreams and how long it took. I mean, uh, here, hello, here it is. <laughs> yeah. It took, took years, but it's yeah. here. I, I have the biggest smile on my face because it's just... You think thinking through this story that you've you've shared with us, this, the the confusion, the panic, the the uncertainty, and then to just know that God knew that that this young lady would be in this market in 2022, yes. and yes. all the steps that He took to get you and your wife and your son into position. Right. It doesn't happen overnight, and a lot right. of times we don't see the little incremental steps that God is taking us on until we look right. back. And so I'm so excited for you guys. I'm so, so thrilled to share your story with everyone who's listening to this mission season. It's it's a joy to hear that the way God's working. Like it's just Amen. we couldn't do it, right? We couldn't we couldn't orchestrate this stuff. It would never Absolutely it would not. never work Absolutely. out. For sure. For sure. Thank God. Well, unfortunately, we're close to out of time, mm-hmm. but I do want to ask you two more questions if you have the time. Yes. One of them is what we're asking kind of all of our missionaries, and you've kind of touched on a lot of this already, but if there's anything more that you would have to say about what you've learned 
over these past few years about yourself, about the church, about God, um, since you left Ohio and stepped out into the mission field? I've learned how to trust God. Mm-hmm. Basically, the, the, the short answer is I've learned how to trust God. And like you just put it, uh, you said it so so beautifully, just, just how he puts everything in place and he prepares you. He's working, you know, um, when you don't even know it. Mm-hmm. He's working everything out. And I've learned to really trust God. And, and one of the biggest things for me coming here, and I'm still learning French, one of the biggest things for me in France was the language barrier. Yeah. I love people. I love talking to people. And uh, for the first few years in France, I've just, I, I preach with a translator. My wife translates for me a lot. But I'm, I, ministry to me is not just about preaching. It's about connecting with people. Yeah. So that has been a, a, a challenge for me. And so it has not been easy through all of this, but in every aspect of, of, of my life and all the challenges, God just keeps reminding me, you've got to trust me. This is all a timing thing, and I'm, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I learned to trust God, and I learned to, to understand that he has everything under control. Yeah, I love that. You were talking about this method that you're using for connecting with people. Is there a resource or or something that people can find to learn more about that, or is it? It 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 is. Um, I can I can send you a link. They're 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 working on some stuff right now, and I don't know if it's um, if it's totally pu- public. But um, for your listeners, I can absolutely just find out if if I'm able to share that. Yeah. And. Uh, send you a link for so people to uh, know about that for sure. Yeah, I love that. It, it's exciting because it's exactly what Dave and I have been talking about. Our goal for when we get to Copenhagen yes. is just connecting with people and building relationships and um, and just being friends with people and, and letting the Lord open the doors. Absolutely. Well, our very last question of the show, we always ask everybody the same question because we call our show Good Question. We want to know what is a good question that you are asking yourself lately? A good question that I'm asking myself lately is where are we going to find all the people to do all this work that needs to be done here mm-hmm. in France? Uh, I didn't go into a lot of the different things that's been happening in 2022 with a lot of different groups things that's been started around the country that God has started through us around the country. And my question that I ask God every day is, where are the laborers? Who is going to do all this? But I think I know the answer. He's working on them. He's going to move on them and send them to you. The timing. Exactly. That's what it is. (laughs) Doing it. Yes. Well, we're so excited. We're so glad you were able to join us. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was so good to catch up with you. and. we are, we're thankful for your, for your thoughts, your wisdom, your insight. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you again. I hope that when you're on the side of the pond that we could connect at some point. I hope so. All the best to you and your family. Thank you, sir. Well, hopefully we'll see you. Okay. God bless. <laughs> God bless. Bye-bye. I absolutely loved that conversation. I hope you did too. It always brings me joy to be able to bring guests on the show who are transparent and honest about the struggles of living for God and following His call. Because I know that you listening experience struggles and questions just like I do. Talking about it helps us feel less alone, which is one of our missions here on Good Question. I hope Dean's story of stepping out in faith before the peace came is an encouragement to you 
If God is asking you to do something that is new or scary or just downright counterintuitive and you can't make sense of it, but you can't get away from it either, I hope you're reminded today that you can trust Him. I also appreciated Dean's openness and honesty about his experiences with racism, both in his childhood and now as an adult. I hope that part of the episode really gets you thinking about what your responsibility is in maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. We all have a role to play, and it's not always the same as the person sitting next to us. I'm excited to hear about the growth happening in the church in France. If you connected with the burden that Dean was sharing with us, I hope you'll reach out and get more information about how you can get involved. You can reach us here. We'll be happy to help you get connected wherever we can. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook. The podcast is at Good Questions Show, and I'm at Jessica Tanderup. That's Jessica T as in Tuesday, A-N-D-E-R-U-P. You can follow our family's journey to Denmark at Tanderups for Denmark. That's Tanderups with an S, the number four, Denmark. This podcast is a production of Good Question Media and is produced and hosted by me, Jessica Tanderup, my co-producer, editor, and the man who honestly keeps me on track so that this podcast actually makes it into your ears is my husband, Dave Tanderup. Our audio engineer is Josh Powalczyk. That's it for this week. We'll be back here next Tuesday with another good question, our final episode of season two. I can't believe it's already here. We'll see y'all then.